Welcome to the Gearing Roles podcast. Gearing Roles is a project funded by the European Commission under Horizon 2020. Gearing Roles seeks to design, implement and evaluate six gender equality plans following the steps described in the GEAR tool. The project has a firm objective of challenging and transforming gender roles and identities linked to professional careers and work towards real institutional change. Today, our episode delves into the impacts of COVID-19 on working mothers. We talked to two different women working in the academic field on how they dealt with homeschooling their children while working at home, as well as their thoughts on how COVID-19 has impacted the future of academia. Our first speaker is Elena Isabel Pereira Esteves from the University of Lisbon. Thank you for agreeing to chat to me today. Um, Like I mentioned, this is just a brief kind of interview to get a sense of how kind of mothers have been coping during the pandemic with homeschooling their children and also juggling their careers at the same time. Okay. And yeah, I just wanted to get a sense from you about kind of what you do, how and how the pandemic affected you. Yes. Okay. <laughs> well, I'm Alina Esteves. I'm Portuguese. I'm 52 years old. I'm an um, assistant professor at University of Lisbon, uh, more specifically at the Institute of Geography and Special Planning. Uh, so I'm a geographer by training. And I'm a teacher uh, and I'm a researcher there at this institute. I've been working there since, I don't know, since the mid-90s. So I did all my career, my career in Portugal. So I, I teach, I, I, I do research, and I also am also in charge of um, uh, bureaucracies uh, at the academic level in our institute. I coordinate uh, with another colleague a master's degree on human geography, and I teach uh, different courses on human geography, statistics, my international migration, of course, European studies. Wow, okay. It sounds like you do a lot. <laughs> Well, I'm also married and I have two children. My son is 15 and my daughter is almost 11. Oh, okay. And how did COVID-19 affect your personal and professional life? You mentioned you have two children. Were they at home? Did you have to homeschool them? Um, what was the situation like in Portugal? Yeah, it was pretty pretty difficult. Um, I was on sabbatical leave since March 2020 until February 2021. So it was a difficult situation from what I was used to. I had plans to uh, visit and work with other colleagues in other uh, European universities. Not very long stays, but at least, uh, let's say, one week, one and a half week Mm. to conduct research with colleagues in Spain, uh, in the Netherlands and Sweden. All of this was derailed. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I couldn't do it. At the same time, I had my kids uh, at home being schooled from home. So it was quite challenging from the technical point of view. So we had to have lots of computers because I was also, I was also working from home, trying to write and read and make my sabbatical leave uh, productive. Yeah. Uh, but they were being taught from, from, from home. So they have to have their own computers. One of my kids was here with me. Anna was here by my side. My son Manuel was in his room. It was not easy. They were always asking for help because they needed to print exercises, things that the teachers would tell them to, mm. to do, and then to scan the, the, the papers and upload them in the Microsoft Teams in, in, the, in, the, in the platform. So it was a constant demand to help them, to support them. 
uh, also to help them with homework. They had more homework to do. And at the same time, I was trying to read and to write. So it was not easy. But my my saviors, let's say, uh, were my parents, because uh, although they are in their 80s, they are very active. And so they came every day. They, they traveled from their home to, to, my, to my apartment. They live 30 minutes away. Uh, they drive, uh, my father still drives, and so they came every day from Monday to, to Friday to help me, and my mother would take care of meals, uh, of lunch. Uh, they, they would not stay for dinner. They, she took care of lunch, and my father did little errands, like going to the supermarket or um, buying some little things that we needed, mm. so it was really, really helpful. Uh, they were uh, essential to me, uh, to my work, so that I could write and read uh, make the sabbatical productive and also to help my children with their with their school tasks. Yeah, absolutely. So, That's great. That's I, great to hear. I was really support. privileged to have my parents being able to help me. And also the fact that my husband is a, a IT engineer. Um, it was oh, really, that's really great. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> he was not just able to, to, to take care of the internet, but also to to fix the, the computers, to make the, the, the space and room and techno, techno, technology available for, for, the, for the kids. Mm. So I was, I was really lucky at the same time. Mm. And do you think, um, I mean, of, of course, this was, it sounds like it was really difficult, a difficult time for you. But do you, did you find it really difficult to juggle work and family life? And how did this, do you think, affect your career? How did this affect your career? It was difficult. Yeah, I must admit it was difficult because sometimes I wanted to concentrate on writing papers and mm. I had to arrange with my mother what we would, co- what she would cook for, for lunch or what she would buy in the supermarket or the kids asking me uh, to print uh, exercises or to upload exercises. It was difficult, but I was able to be productive. At the mm. end of the sabbatical, I was v- very happy, very happy to... To be able to write, not alone, not just by myself, but with colleagues, three papers. Wow! My gosh! (laughs) It was not just by myself. I mean, I didn't didn't write them alone. Mm. Uh, But I was able to to find moments uh, to be able to write. So in terms of career, it was productive. But I had very particular, uh, a very particular situation. Mm. It caused me a lot of stress mm. to have the kids at home and knowing that they would have to wake up at the right time. I had to make sure they would, uh, would wake up, that they would have the needed materials. My dining room looked like a, an office with exercise books, uh, school books, uh, dictionaries, yeah. uh, drawings for, for, for the diverse courses, courses they have uh, in the school, and and I I think that it also affected my friendship and my relationships with colleagues at university, at our institute because we I used to go every day mm. and stay there in, in in the office with other two colleagues and we were really very close and uh, close to each other a very close group, and I think it also affected my my ability to to relax a little bit with other colleagues and talking and just chatting. Yeah. I felt very isolated from my from my colleagues. 
Yeah. And do you think that affected your work in terms of it was difficult perhaps to network or perhaps to find out certain things from your colleagues that were important, you know, for your papers or for your research? It affected a little bit because I wanted to talk with colleagues and say, okay, what do you think about this? What do you think about that? Shall we write this paragraph? Shall I take it away? Shall I delete it? And I I could do it online, but my colleagues that were, who were teaching were so tired of spending so many hours in the Zoom platform mm. lecturing that I didn't have the courage to ask them for one more meeting. Yeah. So I think I, I also postponed research that I had with with one of my colleagues that shares the office w- with me. We are not trying to finish that paper. And the reason was I, I privileged contacts with colleagues that were abroad yeah because it was easier to connect by by the internet mm. through zoom uh, i wasn't teaching they were they were also at home uh, i felt that i could not overburden my office colleagues yeah. with one more meeting to talk about one more paper yeah yeah definitely definitely you know i feel that and um are you are you back in in person like are you lecturing and back in the office in real life in this semester that started in uh, in february uh, 2021 we had mixed regime uh, in terms of classes so right. the face-to-face classes uh, and uh, also uh, zoom online zoom classes yeah and um so i was going to the institute let's say two or three days a week and then staying uh, working from home uh, during the the other days, but I still felt that I lost a lot of my connection of my links with my colleagues. The number of emails and phone calls just skyrocketed because uh, mm. instead of just opening the door of my office and going to the other office in front of mine and asking something to a colleague of mine, I just phoned. I sent an email, so I multiplied emails and and, and phone calls. Absolutely. Now that the semester is, uh, is is ending, I mean, officially the semester ends today. I've not I've not been going to the to the to the to our institute so often. I'm also working from home. I've I'm, I've been going there, let's say, twice a week. But July is a is the kind of month when people already don't go every day because there are no classes. It yeah, just makes sense. right. So it's a quiet month anyway. Yes. Okay. But, and do you think the kind of the world of academia is moving towards a more digital environment? Absolutely. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Um, we have many more meetings now on Zoom and nobody finds strange. So we've reduced a lot face to face meetings. And sometimes I think that's terrible because we just switch off our Zoom platform and then we go away and Instead of staying a little bit with people at the end of the meeting and just arranging things or chatting a little bit, that kind of conversation that is not very important but connects you connects you to people, we just switch off the Zoom platform mm. and then we go away and do something else and it's gone. Yeah. Uh, and our classes are being planned for face-to-face for next September, but we really don't know if we will have a mixed 
system, a mixed regime of uh, face-to-face classes and online classes. It depends mm-hmm. on the evolution of the pandemic. But definitely the number of online meetings uh, is now much, much higher and nobody finds it weird. Yeah, yeah, it's become the new normal. And are your children back at school? I mean, they're obviously in school holidays now, but they're back to classes in real life, face-to-face. Yes, yes, they, they went to classes in uh, in face-to-face in February or... No, January, January. Then they were at home during Carnival, but most of the time they had face-to-face classes, yes. Mm, that's yes, good. They so I, dry, I drove them to, to the school in the morning and then I, I, I came home. But they, I think they had a more normal regime. Yeah, yeah, good. So you think this, my last question is, do you think this is going to change how you work now in the future? I, well, I hope not. I hope to go back to the office. I really miss the office and my colleagues. I hope to go back to the office in, in September. I know my other colleagues also think mm. the same. But I think that... Traveling for meetings or scheduling meetings, face being face to face, I think that that has changed. People mm-hmm. are now accepting more easily that you have a meeting in Zoom platform. For example, for someone who is in Algarve or in Porto or in another part of the country, you might ask that person to come to Lisbon for a meeting. Yeah. Not anymore. Yeah. It's not. It's not worth the effort of taking the train and traveling to Lisbon, let's say two or three hour travel for just a, let's say, alpha, alpha day meeting. You don't do that mm. anymore. You just schedule a, a meeting online. And I think that even for events, it will be like a mixed regime online and face to face. Some of the yeah. events that are now being prepared in, at university have this double mixed regime. So it, it it has changed. Yes, it has changed. I sincerely hope we go back to face-to-face classes mm. because I really like to be close to the students. Yeah. Do you think this and, will... Uh, what kind of impact do you think this will have on the students, potentially, but also on, on you know, academics? On students, it had a lot of impact because some of the students felt totally lost. Mm. Some, some of them are not very organized, so they weren't able to write their essays or to conduct their research properly. Some of them switched off the camera as well. I was lecturing and I know they were away because I called their names and they weren't there. Yeah. So it was <laughs> uh, So it was a bit frustrating yeah. for me, but for them it was some some it caused a bit of a disorganization, a bit of a chaos. Mm. They they lost the habit of going to the institute every morning and having like regular classes. And in terms of, uh, of the academia, I think we are all heading for a more digital uh, mm. behavior, attitude, I don't know, relying a lot on these platforms. I don't know. Yesterday, we, I had a meeting for a, a, a. I was a member of the jury for the selection of a research projects to be funded by the asylum uh, and integration funding, and we were nine people online during the entire day, and we used to have these kind of meetings in in person, mm. and I was totally exhausted. It was much more difficult to argue to argument 
to defend your arguments with, with other colleagues. It was really awkward. But for the people who were in Coimbra mm. and Leiria, several of them, it was so much easier. They didn't yeah. have to come to Lisbon as they used to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a double-edged sword because, like you said, it's it's problematic because it creates this kind of, like, online virtual fatigue. But at the same time, it, it opens up to people who perhaps wouldn't be able to travel in the past or who couldn't make the meeting for various reasons or who live in more rural areas. So definitely, I think it's connected us, but it's also created challenges along the way. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. It's there's very good things, but there are other not very positive things. Absolutely, yeah. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for chatting to me today and telling me about your experience during this difficult time. Okay, Olivia, it was great to see you, to know you in person, yeah. and to be able to to share my experience. Thank you so much. Okay, thank um, you, Olivia. Yeah, have a lovely holiday. Thank you. I need it. I need it. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. Enjoy. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye, Olivia. Bye. Bye. We're now joined by a second speaker, Emily Tapping, Chief Executive Officer at Oxford Brooks Union. So hello and thank you for joining us today um, on the Gearing Role podcast. Can you tell us a bit about yourself and introduce yourself to our listeners by telling us about what you do for a living and your career up to this point? Hello, uh, thank you very much for having me. I'm Emily Tapping. I um, started as Chief Executive of Brooks, Oxford Brooks Students' Union in February 2020, so last year. Prior to that, I was, I'd taken a year as maternity leave with my first daughter. I haven't been in an office for two and a half years now. Wow. Uh, and, <laughs> um, before that, I've worked mostly in student unions and universities. So I started in um, university complaints and appeals. And I've moved into sort of various policy roles in student unions. And now I run one. Awesome. That's great. And how did COVID-19 affect your personal and professional life? So I, as I said, I started this job uh, on the 17th of February 2020. Uh, and in England, we went into a lockdown on the 16th of March. Wow. <laughs> um, I'd been in my role for four, for four weeks. And by the time we had to sort of make those really difficult decisions to kind of shut everything and just start again. Uh, it was particularly daunting for me because I, uh, this is my first year as a chief exec. Mm. So I'd never been solely responsible for that sort of decision making before. And also I'd just gone back to work with my first child. So I had no idea what to expect or what to do. I'd say the main the main effect it's had on me is I, I feel like we've been in crisis mode for 18 months now. And that's been really, really difficult to, to get out of particularly the first five months we didn't have you know there was no childcare. you weren't allowed anybody with you and luckily being a chief exec I felt able to say well you know this is this is how it is I'm going to have to be looking after a child at the same time um, but my husband didn't have that luxury and his office were very much less um, understanding so it really did fall down to me for five months <laughs> to kind of work as a chief exec in my first chief exec role um, and look after a baby at the same time and I look back now and I think well you know we got through that my daughter's fine she seems okay I feel like I didn't do too bad a job <laughs> um, but always kind of constantly worrying and um, and I feel quite proud of, of of getting through it but it was very difficult certainly the first five months yeah absolutely that sounds really difficult um but I'm sure you did a fantastic job and 
I mean, you've alluded to it being a little bit difficult to juggle work and family life, but you were in a privileged position being a chief exec. Did you still struggle to kind of make that delineation, working from home and saying, you know, this is family time, this is work time? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was, you know, it was particularly compounded by the fact I'd never had to make that delineation Mm. really before. But the hardest thing, yeah, was, you know, I've, I've got these 20 people that I work with and you know they are all relatively young they're all sort of looking to me for support and advice and you know quick decision making and you know that could be at 8 p.m 9 p.m you know it doesn't matter to them they need they need an answer they need somebody to say to them that everything's okay and that's why you know I'm a senior leader that's what we do (laughs) so having to sort of you know take that step back every now and then and and realize that one one half an hour unit might be family time but then the next half an hour unit will be work time so that's been quite difficult and as things have opened up being able to sort of reassert that that boundary has been really helpful yeah um but but I think I think student unions are probably a bit better at it than universities because we're much smaller Mm. so we're, we're small entities within wider you know, within the wider higher education, within the institution. And that means that we're able to set policies that are much more family friendly. So I was able to say, look, if Mm. you need to work completely flexibly, then that's fine. We trust you to do your hours. We trust you to do your work. But that's because there's far fewer people relying on each other to Mm. be able to kind of work through things. And I think if I was in a university setting, that would have been much more like a, a genuine university setting that would have been much more difficult. Yeah. And was that difficult to kind of have that trust in place, considering you just started this position? Oh, absolutely. But we we didn't have any choice, you know. Um, And I think the people that I worked with, we all sort of had to take a big leap of faith right at the beginning. And we did a lot of work right at the beginning around what are our values and what do we trust about each other? And what does that look like? Um, And we set some sort of behavioural standards some really some really difficult conversations that people probably didn't really want to have right at that time but we we knew we had to have them otherwise it was going to cause resentment in the team if somebody thought somebody else wasn't working hard enough you know just saying to people well you just have to trust each other that's the way this is and we were really lucky that actually it freed up you know we that that having those conversations then freed up a load of other conversations for us around Mm. like what's our organizational purpose and what do we all do because everybody got very introspective and wanted yeah. to really think about you know well if I'm at home and I'm not talking to students what am I doing mm. you know we really had to kind of delve into that um so yeah there was a lot of very philosophical conversations early on but those things really helped and it meant that you know we we did grow some really strong roots from right from that really beginning and you know I'm sure there were some people who had the odd day off sitting at home but you know, we're in the middle of a pandemic and that's kind of okay. <laughs> Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. But that's great to hear that those kind of honest and upfront conversations created that link or that trust that you were then able to build on. I think that's really important to have those conversations. And how did your work change during this time engaging with students? Was it quite difficult? Was it so it was all obviously over Zoom, but did, did, did it change also your interaction, the way that you were able to engage with them? Yeah, it was really interesting from a student union perspective, actually, because a lot of us have this sort of dual purpose Mm. as student unions, where on the one side, you know, we know that we're there to represent students and we kind of, you know, gathering student views and engaging students in that way. But then there's also this other side, which is about having fun and 
you know, making people's lives feel more exciting whilst they're at university and that like, you know, blowing off steam sort of time. And we tried a lot of, we tried to be fun online. (laughs) (laughs) We just couldn't do it. And, you know, it it just, it just didn't work. So, you know, all the free yoga sessions, the, Mm. you know, what Jurassic Park watch parties, like nobody came to them. That's not what we, they, they didn't need us for that at that time. There was lots of other opportunities for them to do that. But it meant that we just retrenched straight back into, okay, well, our main function here is representing students. And we actually, you know, and having that conversation with the staff team who they really want to be doing the fun stuff because it's the fun stuff. That's yeah. what you want to be doing. Yeah. But saying to people, no, like, this is where we're going to get the biggest impact. And this is really what students need right now. And pulling people back to that side of things, um, which is, you know, it's my natural uh way of being I'm, I, I've come up through the, that road of, of student unions so it's much more comfortable for me I'm not a very fun person <laughs> I'm um, sure that's not <laughs> true <laughs> and then, you know and everybody really embraced it and actually it's really paid off because now students see us as that as well as being fun mm. um, and that's meant that you know a lot of our scores in those areas have gone up um, but it it it, you know, we had to make some resource decisions within that and we had to be really careful and say to those people whose jobs it was to just do the fun and saying, so I know you really like doing this bit, mm. but that's not what we need right now. We need you to do this other bit and accepting that some people just, you know, we're not going to fight. We're going to find that quite uncomfortable. Um, but it's just a lot of talking and communicating and listening to, to students and to each other. Yeah. So. Oh, nice. Um, and did the did the issues that students came to you with um, during this time did they change? Did you notice kind of a shifting, or was it very similar to kind of the past issues that you've encountered? Do you know what? I thought it was going to be really different issues, mm. but actually, there's some real fundamentals about you know the the student experience how students want to engage with their learning with their learning environment the support available and it was really just the the same things that we talk about all the time just really really massively amplified and mm. much you know much more immediate so you know students wanted to know if they were going to be able to get out of their accommodation contracts they wanted to know what what, yeah. what it was going to look like and that was quite, you know, so we have our elected president, our, our mm. elected four officers who are, you know, students themselves. And having to kind of work with those four to say, look, this is what students really want. You now have to go and take this to the vice chancellor and say students want out of their accommodation contracts. They want rebates. They want refunds. Mm. And those are really, really difficult conversations. And I know the last conversation that the VC wants to have in the middle of a pandemic is, can we have our money back? Yeah. But unfortunately, like those were the conversations that needed to happen. And that's what we, that's what we had to do. So I was really, really lucky to have four just really incredible officers last year who threw themselves into it a hundred percent and did it with real diplomacy and tact mm. and just, managed to get lots of wins but also accept that they weren't going to get everything that they needed and Oxford Brooks in particular you know there were quite a few horror stories in England about how certain universities dealt with it with students and Oxford Brooks you know they listened they were very receptive to the ideas when we told them things like you know students want to hear more from you they want they want more communication they stepped up to that you know and I, no one got it 100% right but we were very lucky in the way that they handled it and that made me 
you know, in, with all of this happening and the chaos, it made my job a lot easier to be able to know that I could have those conversations with the university. Mm, absolutely. Um, and to have those, also those four people you said that were very much invested. That sounds great. Do you think this period of the pandemic has changed how you work now and how you approach your position? Yes, it has. And I think, well, it's hard for me to compare because I wasn't doing it much before. But I think it really, there were a lot of things, there were a lot of things that really mean a lot to me. And those are things like, you know, living by my values, working by my mm. values, being inclusive, and and like really understand, really understanding what pe- the people around me need. And sometimes, you know, I think particularly women as leaders, we get criticised for that. So being mm. ov- overly empathetic to the people that we work with. But actually, this period's taught me that that's our, that's our super strength. That's my super strength. And I wouldn't have made it through, you know, I, I haven't lost really any members of staff. Um, they're all still here, as in none of them have left. And, you know, I don't think that I would be able to say that if I hadn't have really led with empathy. And it was tiring very tiring and sometimes Mm. you just want somebody somebody to listen to you and as a senior leader you don't always get that but I've got no regrets in the way that we've that we handled it at all and I think I'll carry a lot of that forward with me into the into the future that's great and do you think this is this has changed your career do you think this is kind of all the way you look in I mean you've mentioned already that this has changed your outlook to a certain extent but do you think this will change how you see your career or how you see your progress well, I, I'm quite at the beginning of this this journey now mm. as being a chief exec. And I think it's when I started this job, I thought I'll be here for three years, come in, do some good, do some good work and then go. And now I certainly feel a stronger affinity to, to where I am and talk to the Brooks Students Union. And I think I'll probably stay for a bit longer because I can just see, you know, when you've been through such hard times with people, you can really you really feel invested. <laughs> you can really see the potential in the future. So that's certainly changed. And I think I would never now, I'm even further sure that I would never take a job that didn't fit my values and my ethics now and that mm. wouldn't support me as as a mother and a, a chief exec. So some jobs I probably wouldn't be taking following this. Yeah, definitely, definitely agree with that, yeah. Well, I think that concludes the interview. Do you have any questions for me or anything else you wanted to add? Any other thoughts? I guess just to add, add that... Um, I'm really proud of all of the women that I've worked with Mm. in this time. And I've seen some women go through some really, really difficult situations. And the one thing I think the responsibility that we have to the women that come after us is to make sure that we've reflected all of these experience in the policies and procedures that we have and that we're pushing the organisations that we work with to really to really embody these these things, because it's easy now to forget, you know, in a year's time, we might forget all of this, but that's kind of doing a disservice to the people who come after us. So that's our responsibility, I think. Absolutely. I think the one thing that's maybe positive about this pandemic is the lessons we've learned. Um, and I really do hope that those lessons will be brought forward, as you mentioned, because um, I don't want to go through this again in 10 years <laughs> and, or even five years. Um And yeah, I really do hope that we can move forwards and learn from our mistakes. Fingers crossed. (laughs) Fingers crossed. Thank you so much for listening. We are Gearing Roles, a project funded under Horizon 2020. Please visit our website on gearingroles.eu. Thank you.